May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Time is important. It is the subject of many, if not most, of our conversations. We stress about being on time. We wonder if we have enough time. We fret about making the most of our time. Many of us these days have to accommodate multiple work schedules. We have to have shared calendars to make sure that we're keeping track of our time. Extracurriculars for kids are scheduled with total disregard for other responsibilities. Doctor's appointments now have to be made months in advance because we're all running out of time, which is why Annie Dillard is right. Annie Dillard says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Theology, it's true too. Time is important. I have a whole shelf of books in my office about theological time, how to inhabit time, the fullness of time, rethinking time, and time in Scripture is important too. Like this story from Exodus 16, the the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and they begin to grumble and complain. They're hungry. But there's a question, I think, lingering. How long have they been wandering? Does that make a difference? How long has it been since God delivered them through the Red Sea? I think that might change whether we like their complaints or not. How long has it been? Have they been in the wilderness 40 years before they finally say, all right, enough's enough, we need some food? Well, interestingly enough, two verses before I started reading, it tells us exactly how long it's been. Six weeks. That's it. Six weeks. So quick recap. Moses encountered by the burning bush. Hey, Moses, I got a job for you. You got to set my people free from Egypt. Tell the Pharaoh to let them go. Pharaoh says, no, no. Increases the workload for the slaves. Takes their food away from them. Then the plagues come. They leave from Egypt. They make it to the Red Sea. Pharaoh says, get out of here, but then changes his mind. Chases them to the banks of the, the Red Sea. Follows them through the dry land. Moses parts the seas, and then God commands that the seas fall upon Pharaoh and the chariots and all the armies, destroying them. So they've been delivered from their captivity. They've been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and here it is, a mere six weeks later. One nation is buried at sea, another is born at sea, but six weeks, and they begin to complain. No less than six times in this short section of Scripture they complain. If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt... At least there, our bellies were full. But no, Moses, you had to bring us out here to die. Now, I don't know if you you heard this part. It's probably my favorite verse in this whole scripture. Moses has this kind of subtle announcement for the Israelites. He says, hey, by the way, just remember, anytime you complain about me, you're actually complaining about God. Because God sent me to you. It's like every church staff's favorite scripture. Hey, every time you complain, that's fine. But remember, you're not really complaining about me. You're actually complaining about God because God sent me here. Got to be careful. But why are they complaining? Why are they complaining? I mean, are they not grateful for what the Lord has done? It's been six weeks since they were delivered from slavery. Is Is their hunger for food more powerful than their hunger for their freedom? In Egypt, they could have their fill of food because Pharaoh's food economy was one of super abundance. There were storehouses upon storehouses everywhere you looked because there was such an abundance of food. All the storehouses were necessary to accommodate all the food. Food, by the way, that came at the expense of Israel. They were the slaves that had to till the soil to grow the crops to feed the nation. I mean, it's all good and well to know that there's extra food around, but it's another thing entirely when that food comes at the cost of your own slavery. 
and that you have a master who can choose at his whim to give you or to withhold the food whenever he wants. And yet six weeks seems sufficient for the back in Egypt committee to start lifting up their complaints. Things were better there. I know we were slaves, but we had food. They're living under the myth of empire, that abundance is necessary and good so long as you don't have to think about what it takes to make that abundance possible. It's like when you go to the grocery store and they've run out of bananas and you get mad and you go complain to the people of Kroger, where are my bananas? Do you know how hard it is to get a banana to Roanoke, Virginia? But we don't think about the cost of what it takes to get food to us. We just grumble and complain when we don't have what we want. So they grumble, we grumble. The people of Israel lift up their clenched fists at Moses and at God and they complain. And how does God respond? The clouds open up, the thunder shakes the mountains, and God says, You ungrateful fools, you miserable miscreants, have you not forgotten, or have you forgotten what I've done for you? No, God just says, Okay, I'm going to rain down for you some bread from heaven, and your people will go out to collect just what they need for the day. And on the sixth day, they can take a double portion so that on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, they can rest. This is different. This is very, very different. It's a different system. It's a different economy. We might call it the economy of grace. Here on the other side of deliverance, God teaches the people a new way, a new way of eating. And it stands in stark contrast to what they had in Egypt in contrast to empire. Because in the economy of the empire, it's survival of the fittest. The first just become firster. The rich become richer. It stratifies every fabric of reality and it cares not at all about the cost, but manna is the opposite. The Lord provides not just for the first and the best and the brightest, but instead the Lord provides for all. It's no wonder that later Jesus will tell a story, a parable about the laborers of the vineyard who are all paid the same amount no matter how much work they do. The manna arrives for these people whether they deserve it or not. But there's another subtlety to it, something I think we often miss. It's not just that God gives them what they need, but God gives them what they need rather than what they want. It's remarkable to me that the Lord commands the Israelites to take only what they need for the day. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, someone else once said. And then on the sixth day, the Lord says, you may take a double portion so that on the seventh you would rest. Do any of us feel rested? Do any of you feel well rested? I can't remember the last time I said to someone, hey, how are you doing? And someone said, I just got the best night's sleep last night. We don't rest much anymore, I think. Sure, some of us might fall onto the couch every night and zombify in front of Netflix trying to figure out what we're going to watch. But real rest, I mean, taking the time to actually rest is seen as something like a failure more than a gift. Resting seems lazy rather than essential. We don't rest anymore. I wonder if that's why the rate of burnout among all professions is at an all-time high right now. Maybe. Probably. And so it's amazing to me that this story of the man in the wilderness, a story that took place thousands of years ago, has something to say to us today about how we make it from day to day. Not only does it tell us about who God is, God is the one who provides that which we need, like the sun and the soil and our scrumptious food, but it also teaches us how to eat. Eating is one of the most major themes in Scripture. People are eating in the Bible all the time. 
But in our rush to consume the scripture like some sort of text to master, in which we want to appear busy because busyness is next to godliness in our culture, we fail to see that how we eat, it's connected with how we live our faith. From the very beginning, in Genesis, the subject of food and what we do with it is at the heart of our relationship with God. You are responsible for this creation, God tells Adam and Eve. Be good to it, and it will be good to you. Have we been good stewards of this creation that God has given us? I don't know. Eating. God appears to Abraham and Sarah with a promise of progeny over a shared meal. God provides manna in the wilderness for the people who are hungry. In the fullness of time, Jesus spends the majority of his ministry at table, sharing bread and cup with other people. For millennia, Christians like us have experienced the power of God's might and mercy when we break bread, whether we're at the altar or in the fellowship hall or in our homes. That's why I think my professor Stanley Harawas is right. He said, any God who doesn't tell us what to do with our pots and our pans, our clothing and our cooking can't be a very interesting God. God tells us what to do and what to do with our food, which is why ultimately the story of manna is a story of faith. Faith in the Lord to provide, to make good on the promise, to continually make a way where there is no way. And again, I think it's notable that God provides all this manna for people regardless of their faith. In fact, God doesn't give it to them because they're faithful. He gives it to them because they complain, which means the gift is not contingent on their believing it, but only on their receiving it. In other words, the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's control. The story of the manna in the wilderness is also a story of learning how to be out of control, which is why I think sometimes faith seems like such a challenge because faith means we have to trust someone else more than we trust ourselves. And from the time we're little children, we're fed a different story that we have to be in control, that we have to be the masters of our own destiny, that we have to make a way when there is no way. In short, we're told that we have to be God. But God is God and, and we are not. God's the one who saves us because we cannot save ourselves. Left to our own devices, we can't see anything in front of us because all we think about is what we used to have, what we used to have back in Egypt. We fall prey to the myth of empire and the foolishness that we have to be in control. But here in the wilderness, God says something different. God says to the Israelites and to all of us, you can let go. You can open up your clenched fists of self-righteousness. You can stretch out your hands. You can receive the gift because I, the Lord says, I have what you need and what you need is far more important than what you want. That's what salvation is all about. It's everything for nothing, a way out simply by remaining in. It is one remarkable gift that we simply do nothing to deserve. All we have to do is wake up to it like the Israelites wake up to the manna on the ground. The only thing we have to do is take it. Now, sometimes God gets to us with this gift through our singing, through our praying, through our preaching, but sometimes God gets to us through our bellies. I was reading this week about a restaurant, a strange restaurant, a restaurant unlike any I'd ever heard of before, a restaurant in Japan. Jonathan, make sure you check it out while you're there. It's called the Restaurant of Mistaken Orders. Have any of you heard about this? It's the restaurant of mistaken orders. Customers flock to this restaurant in Japan and they are happy to receive bad service. The restaurant of mistaken orders. You ask for dumplings, but instead you get miso soup. You order grilled fish, but instead they bring you sushi. 
It's a regular thing for the waiters and the waitresses to mess things up, to bring the, the wrong meal, to misunderstand your order. Sometimes they will even drink the water they were meant to deliver to your table. That sort of behavior, it actually gets these workers hired, not fired. And why? Because all of the waiters and the waitresses have dementia. It's not a flaw. It's the feature. So at the restaurant of mistaken orders, you get what you need, but not what you want. Now, the owner of this restaurant, he started it to change public perceptions of cognitive impairment. The idea uh, came to him while he was visiting a family member in a retirement home, and when he ordered uh, a burger at uh, dinner, someone brought him a dumpling instead. And for a, for, for a moment, he realized, you know, he could just send it back like you would at any restaurant. That's not what I ordered. But he realized he was in a different economy, not the economy of money, but economy of ability. He realized that the person serving him was one of the people at the retirement home. And so instead of sending the burger back, or instead of sending the dumpling back because he wanted a burger, instead of belittling the server, he decided, you know what, I'm just going to eat the dumpling instead. And he was delightfully surprised to find out that the dumpling was delicious. And he realized that that's what he needed more than what he wanted. And so he started this restaurant, the Restaurant of Mistaken Orders. And if you are ever to go, you discover this gentle surprise of mistakes that have actually become the actual product more than the meal itself. Uh, apparently, the restaurant is filled with laughter. It's filled with laughter as those who are eating uh, are pleasantly shocked to see what they've been unexpectedly served. And yet the laughter does not come at the expense of those who are serving the food. In fact, they often participate in the laughter. The laughing is indicative of a relaxed attitude that is all but absent from many of the server's lives. Whereas reactions to dementia are often frightening and isolating, the strange and wondrous restaurant of mistaken orders, it offers the opposite. In short, it offers belonging to people who no longer feel like they belong. The receptivity of surprise, this delight in delighting, it relinquishes entitlement and expectations and this demand for what I want. It removes obsession with control and it changes the lives of the servers just as much as those who are eating. So when I read about this restaurant, when I read about this surprise and delight that takes place at the restaurant of mistaken orders, I realized that we have a word for that in the church. It's called grace. So hear the good news of the manna, or the gospel according to the Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want, but sometimes you get, you get what you need. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.